I'm Ray Barry, and this is the Audio Wave Cafe podcast. On this episode, my guest is songwriter and producer John Bradley, who was in Coventry Band The Editors, amongst many others. Later, I'll also be playing one of John's original songs, Lily and the Rain. First, I talk about the K-pop phenomenon, and I'll also be shining a spotlight on Nirvana's iconic album, Nevermind. Uh, we should move on. It may sound like a breakfast cereal, but when I recently read that the K-pop music genre, which originated in South Korea, was now a $5 billion industry, I just had to check it out. K-pop, short for Korean pop music, owes its humble beginnings to a 1992 TV appearance by a band called Satoji and Boys. In bringing together influences from R&B, hip-hop and dance pop, it developed a new sound and so unknowingly, they kick-started what would eventually become a global brand. Though in its formative years, it remained of interest only in its Asian region. That's until 2012, when Psy released the single Gangnam Style, which became an international hit, topping the music charts in 30 countries including the UK. The official music video of the song helped propel it to more than 1 billion views on YouTube. With a peak chart position of number 2 on the Billboard Hot 100 in America, many K-pop acts, some of which have up to 8 members, bring together many American music influences. They also include intricate dance moves in the act. The bands work hard for success, and their Korean record labels like Hybee and SM Entertainment make sure they do. Probably the biggest band, BTS, recently complained of exhaustion with industry insiders saying that the K-pop system is a problem because the artists are not given time to mature. Well, I guess if you're in a multi-billion dollar business, the record companies are not going to give you the weekends off. If tempted to check out a live K-pop act, you could try and grab a ticket to see five-piece female at Blackpink, who headlined one of the British summertime festival concerts in Hyde Park in July of this year. You won't see me there. I just might be checking out Bruce Springsteen, who was performing with the East Street Band a few days later. One thing's for sure, you never see Bruce showing us his intricate dance moves. My guest today is songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, vocalist and producer, John Bradley, originally from Coventry. He now resides on the South Coast. John, thanks for joining me on this call. Ray, thanks very much for the invite. It's really nice to uh, to meet you. Thank you. John, a.k.a. Pompey Jazz. Now, that's an interesting name. Ah, the mystery of the Pompey Jazz name. Well, it's not as uh, exciting as it might seem. It all goes back to the days when the uh, internet was first invented and you had to sign up for an email address. And at the time, I had two dogs, one called Pompey and the other called Jazz. So it's uh, <laughs> right. so it sort of morphed from there. <laughs> And um, then, of course, you know, you join various groups and forums and stuff like that. And uh, it was just like a sort of recognisable name and the, the handle sort of stuck. So uh, Pompey Jazz it is. <laughs> so it's, well, I like it because I can remember it instantly, uh, Pompey Jazz. Oh, that's good. No, that's good. I mean, a lot of people think, oh, he must do sort of jazz music. But, well, sometimes I delved into jazz, but... Uh, no, it doesn't sort of really reflect uh, where I'm coming from musically. Okay, then. That's that cleared up. From 1979 to 1982, you were in Coventry band The Editors, but the band has recently got back together again. Why was that? Great little band, a uh, bunch of friends. I mean, we were all sort of uh, 17, 18 in 1979. I think the majority of songs we were doing were covers. 
And then we started writing together and we wrote and wrote. We did a lot of gigs uh, around Coventry and Birmingham and all around the Midlands, really. We eventually sort of disbanded about 1982, but we've always sort of kept in touch over the years and we've always had this sort of connection. I don't know what it is. It's like, you know, writing songs together. You know, all of the lads wrote a little bit and we all sort of played the other instruments as well so we could all have a, a go on the guitar go on the bass and stuff like that so i, I don't know quite how it came about but uh, i mean i've been working with tony uh, the guitarist uh, and, and we did a few songs together a few new ones and then uh, rex who was uh, the bass player and i don't know whether you know rex Bruff. he's a you know an absolute musical encyclopedia and fine producer might i say and martin birch as well well we started to do some recordings of some of the old songs and then we interspersed them with some of the new songs through that we produced uh, an album then we sort of moved on to do another album which again we did uh, a couple of re-recordings of the one of the old songs but it was a sort of different version of it and then um, yeah we got a second album out and um, we're probably well on our way to doing our third at the moment because I think we've probably got about another 12 that we could uh, knock into an album it's been Wonderful working in this sort of online four-way collaboration. There's like absolutely no egos involved. Everybody's an equal part of the process. Where, where can people uh, listen to that stuff? We're not the editors anymore because some other bands stole our name. American band. American band. And one from Birmingham. So uh, we rebranded ourselves as uh, the auditors. Slight name change. But we're on um, the usual platforms on on uh, on Spotify and all the usual gubbins, Apple Music and blah, blah, blah. Later, you were in several other bands, Night Flight and No Pablos. And in 1995, you quit the music business with a 20-year break. What happened? Yeah, right. OK, so after the editors, it was Night Flight. We were nine-piece jazz funk band we had some great times we did a lot of live work uh, we did a single in 1984 recorded at horizon studios i mean the big problem with night flight was keeping a nine-piece band on the road keeping everybody happy after that i did a, some work with tony white again in a band called crystal carnival and we did some demo work at cabin studios and with paul sampson tracy out of the primitives was she was singing backing vocals on that session so that was quite interesting then um so join the O Pablos. Well, I mean, the O Pablos. We were, we really like. We did sort of Tex-Mex covers. We used to uh, run a club at the Earlsden Cottage called the Monday Night Club in the back room of the Earlsden Cottage, which was like quite famous in country for its music. And we thought we had a nice little arrangement where we'd always sort of open up as the sort of host band, and we'd have a different guest on each week. And then the last forty-five minutes, we'd have like a sort of jam, and we'd get all sorts of people popping in. It was a really lovely evening, you know. Around that time, it, I had sort of a quite serious job and married. So yeah, I mean, after that, I just didn't do anything musically orientated for sort of 20 years i mean i, I, I don't think i ever lost the love it was just like the, the whole thing about going out playing live and stuff like that really in 2014 you decided to invest in home recording equipment so you got the music bug again then 2014 i had a bit of a health scare i ended up in hospital i had to have quite a major operation so come out and i'm thinking i've got to get into this music stuff again so i did a bit of investigation into the technology involved and my ethos was i'm gonna try and do this for as little 
or sort of no cost as possible. Obviously, that's not quite possible to do because you do need some basic equipment like a digital audio workstation, microphone, um, audio interface. I downloaded something called Reaper, which is a digital audio workstation. I think it was difficult at first because when you're doing it on your own and you're getting no sort of feedback, you know, it's difficult to gauge when, when you hear your own music. I mean, I just really, really hate hearing my own voice. It's getting some objectivity into, you know, what you're doing is very important. I think what really helped me out there was I joined a forum called the UK Songwriter Forum. People on there from all over the place, all over the world. But it's great because what you do is you'll post a song, you'll review other people's songs, and then people will come back with critique on your songs. Very much give and take. So people might say, well, the, the bass is a bit loud on that. Have you tried, you know, putting a bit more reverb on your vocals? You need to EQ this. So you start to learn all these like techniques about EQ and compression and reverb. So it's very much, you know, what you put into it, you get out of it. Also, um, you know, we did sort of a number of challenges like write a song in this particular genre. Here's a picture write a song about it i also had the chance to collaborate online with other musicians which was an absolutely fascinating process i think i've probably maybe collaborated with about another 20 musicians i met uh, two lads who were both based on the south coast and we did sort of a we put an album together of a sort of three-way collaborations well wonderful experience sounds like something uh, an aspiring songwriter ought to get into or check it out the uh, song, UK Songwriter Forum, yeah. Oh, okay, then. So can you tell me something about your recording equipment and recording process? Yeah, right. Okay, so um, as I say, I've got um, Reaper, which is my digital uh, audio workstation. I've got a little audio interface, which is a focus right. It's just basically all it is is one microphone in and one instruments channel in. It's only a small little box probably less than 100 quid. Through Reaper, I can do MIDI programming. So I've got a sort of MIDI keyboard. I can play the keyboard. And then if I make mistakes with MIDI, the wonderful thing about that is that you can just edit all your mistakes out. A bit like what you can do in your podcast. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Sorry, is, is Reaper free? Reaper costs $60. At the time, it was like 40 quid. And it's, it's, it's absolutely a wonderful piece of software. But of course, you know, I can multi-track then. I use drum software called Easy Drummer. So I can, you know, sort of program drums. I can import drum tracks. So it's just really sort of layering. The recording process really is that I might come across a phrase that sort of seems to stick. I might write some lyrics. I might think, I just fancy doing something funky and come up with a bass line and lay that down. Or I might come up with a guitar riff. Just really, it could come from anywhere. And then it's a matter of sort of layering things on top of each other and taking it from there really and then of course mixing it all together which is again a bit of a <laughs> black arts really so for a few hundred quid a musician could set up a home recording studio i think so i mean you're going to need a computer digital audio workstation a decent mic i mean i say my microphone costs like 90 quid and i think i'll get pretty good results out of it um Audio interface, maybe that was about 80 quid. Software's 40 quid. So it's not a lot of money, really, when you think about what you can produce, really. In 2020, you collaborated with French writer and vocalist Cécile. 
you have now completed five albums together. How did you find the experience? Absolutely wonderful experience. Cecile, I met her on SoundCloud. I listened to a couple of songs. I thought, she's got a fantastic voice. Um, I thought, I'll be cheeky. I'll, I'll ask her if she'll sing her one of my songs. So I'd like sort of like a French sort of style acoustic type song and she said yes i thought this is wonderful so this was just um at the start of lockdown 2020 you know of course with the power of the internet you can exchange files and stuff like that so she sent me some vocals and it did an absolutely wonderful job so i said right shall we do another one anyway just sort of more from there and cecile sent me some lyrics said what about these can we do something maybe we do like this sort of style song so it just sort of morphed and expanded from there and then before we knew it, you know, we had enough songs for an album and uh, it just continued on that basis. Going by the name of Star XD, you played some gigs in France. How did they go down? What we decided to do was that we'd, um, we'd work on sort of stripped down acoustic and vocal versions of our songs. So we did a bit of practicing and then we did quite a few gigs in France. The reception was amazing. I mean, it's slightly different to playing in England. It seems that in France, when people come along and listen to music, they listen to the music. Whereas, you know, I've done some gigs here and there's people yapping away in the background. And, Are you here to listen to the music or not? We did a lovely um, gig in a place called Cabaret Le Grenier, which is basically the second oldest cafe in France. It's in the middle of Grenoble. And it consists of a, a bar, a restaurant, and upstairs there is a little cabaret club and it's all done in the sort of West Bank style. And we just had a wonderful evening doing a, um, a gig there to a very receptive audience. Um, uh, yeah, just, just wonderful stuff, wonderful times. What type of music were you playing? So we're doing a mixture of stuff, but I say it was all acoustic bass. So we did some reggae. We actually got a track on the Alternative Scar album, Star XD. Well, one on each album. Um, so we, we we were doing some reggae stuff. We were doing some um, some soul, some sort of love songs, um, some more rock orientated stuff. Really, do you still perform live? Um, we haven't done for Star XD for a while. I've personally been doing some um, open mics just recently, um, just locally, and uh, yeah, I'm really really enjoying doing that. I think I've seen one on YouTube. Oh, you might have done, yeah. I mean, very lucky to have a sort of very good open mic that's been running for 25 years that's, um, you know, literally within 10 minutes walk of my house. It's on, on every couple of weeks and then some... Oh, it's great to sort of go down there. I mean, it's it's uh, the, the, their sort of motto is Alley Cats is for everyone. And uh, it's great. There's people of all levels and it's great. You just could get up, do your stuff and uh, you've got the support of the other people that are there, which is wonderful. I think uh, open mic nights are great for us old codgers. We don't have to take any, sir. That's true. I've just walked down the road with my acoustic guitar. <laughs> yeah. I'll get in and there we go, that's it. Yeah. Job done. <laughs> John, you've also released nine solo albums. Are you on a mission? Ah, oh, I don't know. Well, the way I look at it, Thought, well, what, what will I do with my music? Okay, I could um, you record your stuff and leave it on your hard drive. I think you've got to get it out there. I mean, I've got no intentions of uh, or aspirations of um, of it really going anywhere. Um, it's just really for maybe my own pleasure. But I just hope that 
when my music's out there, if people listen to it and they like it, that's great. If they don't, that's fair enough. It doesn't really bother me. I mean, I just do, and I always have done music for the love of it. I never, ever, you know, had any aspirations that uh, that one could make any money out of the music industry. I fully understand that. <laughs> Can you tell me about your involvement in Lifehouse? That's a kitchen and support centre in Southsea. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, I mean, just before lockdown, I started um, working for Lifehouse on a voluntary basis. So it's basically, it's like a drop-in centre who provides free meals to anybody who wants them. Um, They do a breakfast session on a Wednesday and uh, an evening meal, a three-course meal on a Thursday. And it's all completely voluntary stuff and funded by donations. Honestly, you know, it's, it's, it's quite a humbling, life-changing experience working there and just had so many different types of people. Some people that you might not expect, people who have fallen on the hard times, other people who just want a bit of company. And of course, then the whole lockdown thing happened and we got restricted to, you know, doing food parcels because there was no no contact. So we were doing like a takeaway food service um, just at the counter to serving to people outside and food parcels. And of course, like during that time, I think the, the amount of people coming there just increased maybe 100%. Worthwhile cause there, John. Yeah, incredible organisation to be involved in. Do you have any plans for 2023? Obviously, I'd like to continue doing my music, more collaborations, sort of continue in the same vein, really. I say I love doing music and I think more of the same, really. And that's a very good moment for us to wind up this interview, John. Thanks very much for being my guest. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much, Ray. I really appreciate it. On the 24th of September 1991, DGC Records in America released an album that would forever change the musical landscape. To wider public, it introduced grunge, a genre of rock music that had been around for a number of years, but had remained on the fringes of mass popularity. The album was never mine, and the band was Nirvana, comprising of Dave Grohl, drums, Chris Novoselic, bass guitar, and Kurt Cobain, songwriter and guitarist. The album was produced by Butch Vig, his vision in what was required in the recording studio to produce a more radio-friendly album than the band's previous debut album, Bleach, helped propel Nevermind to worldwide iconic status, and to date it has sold more than 30 million copies and earning six platinum discs in the UK alone. Nirvana's striking album cover showed a baby boy in a pool swimming towards a dollar bill that is hooked onto a fishing line. Interestingly, that baby grew into a young man named Spencer Eldon. In 2016, He sued everyone who contributed to the album cover, citing extreme and permanent emotional distress. Though previously he had said that he was grateful to be on the cover of such a massive album. Late August 1991, Smells Like Teen Spirit, taken from the album, was released as a single in America, and several months later in the UK. The record company and the band at the time didn't think it stood any chance of being a hit. The single eventually turned platinum in 10 countries, and more than 1 billion streams on Spotify. At the time, Dave Grohl said, the band were just trying to make cool, short, catchy, powerful songs, like a punk rock buddy Holly, and in that they succeeded, with other songs from the album, such as In Bloom, Lithium, Come As You Are and Polly. 
On the 15th of April 1994, Kurt Cobain committed suicide. The band disbanded and they went their separate ways. These days, Butch Vig is still producing and is also the drummer in Garbage. Dave Grohl is still the frontman in the very successful Foo Fighters. And Chris Novoselic is studying for a law degree and also playing bass for a band called Third Secret. Oh, and uh, Spencer Eldon, who lost his lawsuit in September 2022, is currently appealing the ruling. At the upcoming 65th Grammy Awards in Los Angeles, Nirvana are being honoured with an award for creative contributions of outstanding significance to the field of recording. You know, there is so much of the establishment that Kurt Cobain didn't approve of, but I'd like to think that he would have been very proud of that particular accolade. Coming up is a track written and recorded by John Bradley in his home studio, Lily in the Rain. Drifted away, away 
John Bradley, and many thanks for being my guest. On the next episode is singer-songwriter Kirsten Smitten, and she'll be telling us about her musical journey. Uh, I think that's about it. Yeah, I'm done. Till next time. <laughs>